Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Um, before we read God's Word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank You. We praise You for Your goodness to us that is unfailing. Your constant love, steadfast love. We would have nothing without it. Father, we thank You for Your Holy Spirit and we pray that You would give to us Your Spirit now. If we are capable, even though we are sinners, of giving good gifts to our children, how much more will You, our Father in Heaven, give us the Holy Spirit when we ask? So we pray that You would fill us for the hearing of Your Word, for taking Your truth to heart, and for worshiping You and changing into the image of Christ accordingly. I thank You, Lord, for what You're going to do. I pray that You would have all glory. That's our hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4. to Hear the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Why did the Apostle Paul write this letter to the Colossians? He wrote, in order that we believers may reach knowing Christ together with such full conviction that we be beyond the reach of all deception. What I would like to begin, do as we begin this morning is actually, I want to recap quickly every paragraph that we have covered to this point. So if you want to go back to chapter 1, and if you're a good skimmer, you might want to, to skim over these paragraphs as I summarize them. So beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. In Paul's report of his thanksgiving to God, he thanks God for the work of the gospel in the Colossian believers. The hope of glory had latched onto their hearts and borne the fruits of faith in Christ and love for Jesus' people. Then in verses 9-14, to Paul follows up his thanksgiving with his prayer request. He prays that God would continue the work of the gospel in them. That they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in such a way that they would walk worthy of the Lord and grow in the gospel. Then in verses 15 to 20, Paul spells out that will of God that we must know. He spells out what it is. And we find that it's not centered on us, but God's will for all things is centered on His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus be Lord of all, the head of the first creation and the head of the new creation, preeminent in everything. He made, you can say He's the maker and the peacemaker because He made all things and He reconciles all things to Himself through the blood of the cross. So we find in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 1 that even though this will of God does not center on you and me, it most certainly and amazingly includes you and me. Because as Jesus reconciles all things to Himself, 
that includes believers whom Christ has reconciled by His death and whom He will present to Himself blameless if we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifted from the hope of the Gospel. And so to that end, we see in verses 24 to 29, to the end that we would be presented to Christ blameless, Paul is making Christ known to us. He is our hope of glory. He is the mystery of God hidden for ages and generations, but who is now revealed to God's saints. And so we see in verses 1-5 to of chapter 2 that this is what Paul is toiling and struggling for, that we would reach all the riches of knowing Christ together with such full conviction that we be beyond the reach of all deception. As Paul says in those first few verses that open up chapter 2, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what must we do, verses 6 to 10, in order to persevere until that day when we are presented to Christ blameless? We must walk in Christ just as we received Christ. We received Him as our one hope. And now we must go deep into Christ, rooted and built up in Him. We must let no one deceive us. The false teachers would say that we need to add to what Jesus has done. But Paul says the whole fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. And we have been filled in Him. So we lack for nothing. Having Christ, we have all that we need. We can't possibly add to Him. In verses 11 to 15, Paul insists and he encourages us with the truth that these spiritual powers have been disarmed. They're, they're trying to say we need more than Jesus, but Paul says we have been united to Christ by faith in His death and burial and resurrection. So now we have been wholly consecrated to Christ, made alive with Him, forgiven of all of our trespasses which have been nailed to His cross. So Christ has triumphed over the spiritual powers. Verses 16 to 23. This means we must not be deceived by the satanic opposition of the false teachers who would have us believe that spiritual fullness and growth is not according to Christ alone, but by the self-efforts of law and legalism and ecstatic experience, which are to augment, they say, what Christ has done. But Paul says no. Verse 19, we grow together as we press together further and further into Christ. So that's the first two chapters. And we're a little over halfway. A little bit sadly. We're a little over halfway through this letter. Clearly, there are two very different positions in confrontation with each other about what it means to participate in this heavenly realm. And I'm, I'm drawing this thought from Andrew Lincoln, who, um, who is quoted in Douglas Moo, uh, just to tell you my source. He says, there are two very different positions in confrontation with each other about what it means to participate in the heavenly realm. The philosophy of the false teachers advocated the earth as our starting point, from which by our effort and their technique, we will move beyond the body, gain visionary experience, 
and ascend into heavenly spheres. Paul, however, moves in the reverse direction. He sees the starting point and the source of the believer's life in the resurrected Christ in heaven. And our union with Him then empowers and directs this earthly life. So the false teachers would have us start here below and gain heavenly vision and experience. Paul says no. We start with Christ in heaven. We're united to Him in His resurrection. And that empowers and guides all of our earthly life here below. United to Him by grace through faith, you are finally, truly, and ever alive to God with the very life of Christ. I want to encourage you this morning with these first few verses of chapter 3 to know who you are. Everybody comes to the point in their life at some time where they're trying to discover who they are. As opposed to who they are attached to their parents, who am I as an individual? And if I know who I am, then I can figure out where I'm going and how I'm going to get there. We call this process self-discovery and we're, we're aiming for a self-awareness so that we'll know how we are to live. We must know who we are in Jesus. Because in Him we find our true identity. Know who you are in Christ and become who you are in Christ. I want to make a little short statement that uh, I'll pick up again later on that I think is very powerful, easy to misunderstand and possibly to twist. But this is the truth of the New Testament. As... Christ is, so are you. As Christ is, so are you. This is what it means to be united to Jesus. So know who you are in Christ. Know who Christ is and know who you are in Him and then become who you are. Let's get back into verse 1. We need to make ground quickly. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We have not yet been raised physically speaking, but we have already been raised with Christ spiritually speaking. Our bodies are yet dying, but our hearts and our minds are alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are new in Christ. And so we must seek not the things that are below, but the things that are above. And before I get to talking about what things we must seek above, let's look at the last part of that verse, one, uh, where Paul says, where Christ is, then he says, seated at the right hand of God. What does he, what does he mean? Why does he use that statement? I don't think Paul is saying that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God just in passing. I think this is very important for us to understand who we are and the power that we have from God in our life. Paul wants us to know the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is actually alluding to, not quoting, but alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1, which actually Ryan mentioned, uh, not really in passing, but he mentioned it this morning in Sunday school. 
This is one of the most oft-quoted verses from the Old Testament in the New. And this is what God speaks to His anointed King in Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord, here's David, He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that whole psalm speaks of the reign of the Lord whom God has anointed king. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled this. He is the one who has triumphed over all of his enemies, over sin and death and hell. Christ has fulfilled this. Romans chapter 1 says that in his resurrection, by the Spirit, he has been raised the Son of God in power. He is the conqueror. He has triumphed. And so he is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high in victory. And if you, if you are raised with him, this victorious king, this means that everything in your life has been fundamentally changed. The whole course of your life has been fundamentally changed. This means This changes all that we seek after. Let's get back into the the heart of the verse. What is it that is above where He is that we are commanded now to seek after? I mean, we could speak in a very broad way, like Jesus says, seek first my kingdom. Um, That's Matthew. But I want to briefly walk through Colossians and use Paul's direction in Colossians to um, to ascertain what we must seek after in this life. And I'm not going to walk through in exact order, but I'm going to give you ten things, okay, that we are to seek after which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. First and foremost, and obviously, we must seek the Son of God Himself. God's mystery, once hidden but now proclaimed to us, come into us, our very life. Second, we must seek the glory of God, that hope which latched onto us when we heard the Gospel and bore the fruit of faith. We must, third, seek the will of God, which is Christ, the Lord overall, preeminent in everything. Fourth, we must seek the wisdom and the knowledge of God, of which all the treasures are hidden in Christ. We must seek the love of God, our hearts knit together in Christ and bound, as as Paul will say, in perfect harmony. We must, sixth, seek the peace of God in which we are reconciled, which is in fact the future of all things in heaven and on earth, as Paul said in chapter 1. We must seek, seventh, the holiness of God, the pure blamelessness in which Christ will present us to Himself. Again, chapter 1. We must seek the power of God for all endurance and strength with joy, for triumph over all deception, over the spiritual powers, and over worldliness. We must seek after the faithfulness of God, stable and steadfast, never shifting, just as He is never shifting, just as our hope of glory is never shifting. 
and we must seek the praise of God. Singing together, as Paul will say later on in chapter 3, and abounding in thanksgiving, as Paul said in chapter 1. So those ten things, those are the things, the kinds of things that we must seek after. They're not the things that are below. They are the things that are above. Jesus was raised in victory. He is seated in victory at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is where our life is. And so this should guide all of our self-understanding and all of our living. Verse 2, Paul says, Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. This is really parallel to what he has said in verse 1. You know, seek the things that are above. Now he he's getting more specific. He says, set your minds on things above. Verse 1 is kind of broad, like a, a broad a flowing river directing our life, but just as a, a river that comes to a narrow channel will intensify, that's what this verse is doing. It's, it's narrowing, it's getting more specific, and Paul's intensifying this. Set your minds on things above. To use one commentator's phrase, this means dwell intently on the things that are above. Dwell intently on this life that's in Jesus. If we're going to dwell more, and if we're going to dwell better on things that are above, then we must stop dwelling on the things that are below, the things that are of this passing world. Let me make a specific application. What media are you consuming regularly? And I'm not talking about what form of media, whether your preference is books or you have a favorite TV network or something like that. I'm talking about what are you consuming regularly through media. It's very important because what we are consuming regularly is shaping us and who we are. It's like um, when we get a really hard rain and a prolonged rain, the, the water comes down off that back hill. And it starts to form a channel that runs along the edge of our parking lot. And before you know it, I mean, that thing is like over a foot deep. And as a real hazard, your car is going to bottom out on that if you're not careful. But that's what that running water does. It forms this channel. And that's what the media does in our lives. And I'm not just talking about TV media. I'm not talking about just an article or a book. I'm talking about all forms of media. They shape our thinking. In fact, science has been discovering lately that uh, what we consume, our, our minds, our, our brains are rather, they're plastic in a way, not literal plastic, but they're moldable, they're shapeable, they're flexible, they can change. And we can form new neural pathways in our minds, our brains. And so we need to be very careful that the media that we are consuming is feeding us with the things above. Here is media. Books are media. Articles are media. TV is media. But we can choose to have a habit and a discipline of consuming media that feeds our minds with the things that are above and not the things of this earth. Because those things form, whether they're things above or concerning things that are are of the earth, 
They are forming new thought pathways and new heart highways, to use a term from Psalm 84, highways in our hearts. They, they form that in our hearts and in our minds. We must. This is not legalism. This is just a must for us, um, for our life. We must have time devoted to the Lord to sit quiet before God, to meditate upon the truth of His Son, on the truths of heaven, so that we can be renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator, so that we know how we must, how we ought to think of ourselves, and so that we can have our lives shaped and contoured after Christ. We must be still before God, like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. This must happen regularly, frequently, and and deeply. Here's some motivation for that. For seeking the things that are above, having our minds dwell on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen, church family, listen, every Christian. You are not who you were. You are not the person who was born into the dominion of darkness. That's not who you are anymore. The dominion of darkness does not define you. Your past does not define you. Your sin does not define you. That sin habit that you hate, that makes you want to vomit, does not define you. It's not who you are. You're not your shame. You're not your regrets. This is not who you are. He died. She died. So that Paul will go so far as to say in in Romans 6-8, though you sin, it's not you. That is, your sin is not the real, true you. That you have to do that sin is a lie. That you are dead to that sin is true. That you are free is true. When you battle up against the flesh, you are squaring off against an opponent that is already defeated. When you are resisting the world, you are facing off against an opponent that has already been conquered in Christ. That's strength for the fight. That's strength for the fight. You have died. You have died. You are new. You are alive in Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Man, what what an expression this is. You would be hard-pressed to find anything in in all the New Testament where there's so much amazement packed into a few short words that revolutionizes everything, that turns the world upside down and turns your whole life right side up. It's all packed into this. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. I, we, 
I don't think we can solve this. We can't master this, but we need to, to strive for a better understanding. If you want to use sound, um, wise method of interpretation, it really helps when you come across an expression like this, like, oh, what does this mean? To find a similar expression in the same author's writing. Of course, we're in Paul, wrote half the New Testament. But also, especially, if you can find the same expression in the same book, it really gives you a clue as to what the meaning is. So if we go back to chapter 2, verse 3, you don't have to turn there. This is going to be familiar to you. We, we find a similar expression. Paul says that in Christ are hidden, hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I think we can readily understand to a, a to a significant degree what he means by that. And so I think that phrasing in chapter 2 verse 3 helps us to understand the expression in chapter 3 verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's draw two implications from this. First of all, when Paul says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, obviously he means that any true wisdom and knowledge are of Christ. And in Christ, there is no true wisdom and knowledge apart from the Lord Jesus. And there never will be. So what does that mean for you and me when it comes to chapter 3, verse 3, and the, the, the truth that your life is hidden with Christ in God? Just as there is no true wisdom and no knowledge apart from Jesus, so there is no life for me apart from Jesus. I can't understand who I am. I can't understand my life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. My life is hidden with Him and it can't be found anywhere else. I don't care how, how does the world label you, you fundamentalist. How does the world label you and stereotype you and pigeonhole you? This is what the Bible says about you. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let the world say what it will. My life is in Jesus. And you can't define me by anything else but Him. The second thing that this says, that wisdom and knowledge, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him. This means this wisdom and knowledge is secure. It's hidden in Christ. It's secure. It can't be lost. And it can't be lessened at all. It can't be affected at all by any outside power. Moths and, and rust can't destroy it. Thieves can't break in and steal it. So you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, the world, the flesh, the devil, they can do a lot of damage. The world and the devil opposing you can do a lot of damage to you. But the only thing that they can touch in you is what belongs to this world which is passing away. What is of Christ that He has raised up? They cannot touch it. They can't touch it. Like Jesus says to Martha, just before He raises up Lazarus, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then He says this, 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this, Christian? And when he says, everyone who lives and believes in me, what he means is this. Everyone who lives in me now, in this age, will never die. I'm taking that to mean that the new you in Christ, the new creation raised with Christ, alive to God, the new you is invincible. This this doctrine of union with Christ, as far as Christian living goes, okay, let me qualify it that way because I want to say something big. As far as Christian living goes, Christian life and Christian living, this feels to me like the doctrine of the New Testament. That's how big this is. You died with Him. You were buried with Him. You were raised with Him. You were made alive with Him. Your life is hidden with Him and God. Now, I'm not saying, and the Bible isn't saying, that in some mystical sense, your actual location is not here. Your actual location is with Jesus in some mystical sense. The Bible's not saying that. So what is the Bible saying by saying you are with Christ in in all of these senses? God's Word is saying that you are united to Jesus in such a way that as He, the man Jesus is, so are you. As He, the man Jesus is, so are you. What is required of you, He accomplished. And those accomplishments are truly yours. The reward for what He accomplished, He shares with you. So it means that God loves you as He loves His Son. And i that's a mind-boggling and almost, are you sure, kind of statement. John 17, that's exactly what Jesus says about God's love for His people. God loves you as He loves His Son. God's face shines upon you as it shines upon His Son. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Can God forget you? Can God forsake you? The most devoted mother in all the world could forget her baby before God can forget you. Because God can no more forget you than He can forget Jesus. Because your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is bound up with Christ's life in God. He's turned everything right side up. What is there to seek in this world? What is there to fear in this world? Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4 now. Paul says, When Christ, who is your life, appears. Now, I need to pause here before I finish that verse. When Christ, I want to focus on when Christ who is your life. Paul is not speaking of what consumes your time. Like Ray might say, this water system is my life. (laughs) Paul is not speaking of what consumes your interest. Like a family might complain about the sportsmen in the family, this sporting stuff, this that's his life. 
You know, he's not talking about what consumes your passion or consumes your time. When Paul says Christ is your life, listen to this. Paul is speaking of your true, your very identity, who you are in the most fundamental way. He is getting right to the heart of this union with Jesus truth, this in Christ reality. As he is, we will be. As he is, we are. And as he is, we are becoming. That's the New Testament. Now, I need to qualify this. We are not Jesus himself. Okay? So let's not get weird with this. We are not Jesus himself. And we are not as Jesus is divinely. And we never will be. But as he is humanly, we will be, we are, and we are becoming. He is our life. Get this. Please get this. Please pay attention. He is our life, meaning that in all of this living that Paul is calling us to, in all of this seeking, in all of this growing, we are becoming who we truly are. That's what sanctification is about. We are becoming who we truly are, for Christ is our life. Let's finish the verse. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As this has everything to do with your identity, so it has everything to do with your destiny. When Jesus steps back into this realm, bodily, visibly, you will be with him, just like that, bodily, visibly, in glory. And Christ Jesus in us, the hope of glory will be at last fulfilled. We will be with him. Christ has so bound us to himself that he says, if I am the vine, you are the branches. We are so bound with him that what happens with him happens to us. If he died, so did we. If he was buried, so were we. If he was raised, so are we. If he is spotless righteous, so are we. Just as we sang a little bit ago in, in Before the Throne of God, my sinless spotless righteousness. If he is seated in the heavenly places, this is Ephesians chapter 1 or 2, so are we. So are we. If He reigns forever, so will we. How He is loved, we are loved. How the Father beams and sings over the Son, so His face shines and He sings over us. We have been where He was, where He is, we are, and where He will be, we will be there with Him. So that the bond between you and Christ and God is unbreakable. David Powell writes, Man, Concerning verse 4, he says, you all also will appear with him in glory. Listen to this. This glorious note becomes a significant anchor for the Colossians as they seek to be faithful to the gospel in which they are called. After all, these insignificant ex-pagans from a third-rate country town will participate in a glory that encompasses all creation. And it is to this cosmic vision that their identities are grounded. Who are you? 
just an insignificant no one from a third-rate country town, we could say. And yet, we participate in a glory that encompasses all history and creation. And it is to this cosmic vision that our identities are grounded. Everyone comes to a point where they wonder, who am I? Not defined by my last name, not defined by my parents, not defined by my hometown, but who am I? Go through this journey of self-discovery to reach self-awareness so we can know where we're going and how to get there. But Christian, for you, it's found. It's settled. You're not the old you. Born into the dominion of darkness, it's not you. Your, your past, your regrets, it's not you. Christ is your life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, here's a challenge to me. I don't want to think about you and who you are without talking about Jesus. Because the Bible, God, does not talk about who you are presently without talking about Christ and the fact that your identity is found in Him. It's in Him. So how should, how should you think of yourself? What are we becoming? Christ is our life. You died. With Christ you are raised. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's pray. Father, absolutely, the wonders of the gospel blow the top off all of our expectations. And I know, Father, it's impossible for us to wrap our minds around these things. And it's hard even for us to believe that it's this good and such a great good is actually true for me right here, right now. Lord, I pray that we would not try to find who we are by what we do, by any achievements, certainly not by our sins, but also even by our achievements our own personal reformation or anything like that. Who we are is found in Christ and what He has done. We don't need a a bucket list. We don't need to have some kind of midlife crisis. Jesus frees us from all of those worldly ways, that worldly way of thinking. Lord, You have freed us and all that we are is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Our life is hidden with Him in You. For that we praise you, in that we are encouraged. I pray that my church family, each one, would be built up, would take these things to heart. And I pray the Lord that in light of this, we would further become who we are in Jesus. Thank you and praise you for what you do. In his name, amen.